please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, the scripture for today is Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 22. Um, moreover, I saw the sun that in the place, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is God's word. Please remain standing. Well, if you have a Bible with you or can use the one in front of you, go ahead and grab that and make your way back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. If you open up and you hit Psalms, keep going. You'll hit Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. And if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 660. I want to welcome you if you're just joining us uh, for this series. We've been uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks now and on a journey following the preacher, uh, who is probably Solomon, as he takes an honest and really a penetrating look uh, at what he calls life under the sun. Life in the world you and I live in day to day as we see it and experience it. Uh, in other words, he is exploring whether there is any lasting gain or significance to be found in how we spend our days on earth. Setting aside for the, for the moment any difference that God might make in that equation. So if you are just going about what you see, what you experience, what you accomplish. Is there anything of lasting value to be found in that? That's his question. And he's asking it because he wants us to see that apart from God, all that we do, all that we accomplish is vapor. It's vanity. That's a word he uses over and over in this book to describe life under the sun. It's fleeting and fruitless. And so the first half of this book consists in several research projects, several different aspects of life that he slides under the microscope and examines in order to make sense of of things. Um, We've watched him explore so far human activity and achievement, human wisdom in chapters 1 and 2. And last week we ventured into his second research project in chapter 3, Time and Eternity. And if you were here, if you've gone back and listened online, uh, you'll remember that as we looked at really the most famous part of Ecclesiastes, the poem, a time for this, a time for that, uh, contrary to what we might have expected, we didn't find that same kind of ominous and even depressing tone that we found quite often in his first research project. Instead, we found uh, a confident affirmation that God is working out his sovereign purposes in our lives in a beautiful yet mysterious way. And we saw that last week, how all of time and history have been crafted, carefully orchestrated by God. Uh, And though we can't see the full extent of what he's doing, 
we can see enough of it to see that what he's doing is quite beautiful in its time, very fitting and appropriate. Uh, and so as we realize that we're not in control of this whole thing, that we're, we're not the ones who get to call the shots, we can still uh, live in joy in the work of our hands and what God gives us to do day to day uh, as we fear and respect and trust the God who is in control of all of that, uh, knowing that he's going to work his good and beautiful purposes out. So God has made everything beautiful, fitting, suitable in its time. And that's what we saw last week. But as his study continues, uh, and we get now into verses 16 to 22, uh, we run into something that does not look very beautiful in its time. The harsh reality of injustice and wickedness in the earth. How do time and eternity, how does God's sovereign plan play into that? This, this wickedness and injustice that we encounter uh, day in and day out. That's the question that our passage raises this morning. Uh, what are, and, and what we're going to see as we look at it is that though life is very often clouded uh, with injustice and death, we can trust God to accomplish his purposes and to make all things right in the end. That's where we're going this morning. So let's pray. Let's ask God for wisdom as we look into his word to see what he's saying and that our hearts might be changed. So join me in prayer. Lord, this is your word. And we have a sweet and humble privilege to be able to gather and to be able to open it together and hear your voice. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak through your word this morning into our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the honest questions that this book raises, uncomfortable questions sometimes. And yet, you are at work through it, and we need to ask them so that we can hear you and see you and be changed by your Spirit according to the gospel of Jesus. And so that's our prayer this morning, Lord. Meet us and be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. The desire for justice uh, is a basic feature of humanity. And by justice, I mean uh, doing what is right and making right what is wrong. So that's what we mean as we're going to use the word justice throughout the sermon. We're talking about doing what is right and making right what's wrong in this world. And it's a relatively basic feature of humanity. Every nation crafts some sort of system of order and law in order to maintain justice. Now, the definition of justice might change from nation to nation. It might be justice according to a dictator or according to a king or according to people, but there's some sense of justice that's being maintained. Uh, You look at every major religion in this world. There is a concern for keeping justice and often rules to guide that. But we don't need political or religious systems to tell us that we should desire and expect justice. Just step into the nursery downstairs. And inevitably, at some point this morning, you will hear these words come out of some child's mouth. That's not fair. You know, that's not fair. We have, we were born with a desire for justice and fairness, a longing for it. One author describes, we dream the dream of justice. We glimpse for a moment a world at one, a world put to rights, a world where things work out, 
where societies function fairly and efficiently, where not only, where we not only know what we ought to do, but we actually do it. And then we wake up and come back to reality. In our dream, the sky is clear, the sun was shining, life was as it should be. We open our eyes and, and we look down the road and we see that a dense fog has settled in. The kind of fog that if you turn your headlights on, instead of cutting through it, it actually shows it to be thicker and, and denser than you even realized. So we look for justice, but instead we share the preacher's observation in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The fog of life, the fog of injustice is daunting. I remember uh, traveling to visit family in Indiana one time and having to inch our way down a highway at, I think, less than 30 miles an hour because the fog was so thick, we couldn't see taillights in front of us or headlights behind us. And to make it worse, it was deer season, so we were just waiting any moment to slam into Bambi on our way down the road. It's nerve-wracking if you've had to drive in those conditions. And I would imagine in New England you probably have. Um, and after a while, it's just plain frustrating because you're never going to get there. And so you kind of want to push it a little bit. Um, it's discouraging. And that's when the path is clearly marked out. Life isn't always so obvious as the highway. We don't always see the road signs and the mile markers that we're looking for as we try and make our way through life. But the fog can be just as thick. We flip on the high beams for a closer look and instead we're startled by an impenetrable wall in front of us. A world that doesn't work the way that it should. A world in pain. A world out of joint. A world where things occur which we seem powerless to make right. And that's what we find. We look for justice but we see the innocent convicted and the guilty go free. We see the powerful take advantage of others while the masses praise them. Those with enough money buy their way out of trouble, while the single mom who's working three jobs and comes within a few hundred dollars of paying off the car ends up getting it repossessed. Nations languish in poverty and sickness while their governments feast in corruption. The student who cheats off your exams and assignments gets a scholarship to a state university while you're wondering whether you can save enough money for community college. And if we take this observation, all of these things that we see in the world, we take that in light of the earlier part of chapter 3 that we looked at last week and how all of this is somehow supposed to be part of God's sovereign plan, well, things get even cloudier then. What do we do with the injustice that we see? What do we do with a God who's supposed to be working all of this out? Is there any way to peer through the fog and glimpse God's plan? And if so, what difference would that even make? Well, what does Solomon tell us to do? Take a look at verse 22 with me. This is his conclusion 
to this subject. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, we've heard that instruction before, that rejoice in our work. We, we heard it at the end of chapter 2 in verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? We heard it last week in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And unless we're tempted to think that Solomon's talking about, you know, just putting a good face on our misery or, or living it up since we're going to die soon anyway, we need to recognize the source of the joy that he's talking about three times here so far. It comes from God himself. You know, it's from the hand of God. It's God's gift to man. It's our lot, our portion. This is real, lasting joy. The preacher commends us to take joy in our work even amid the fog of injustice. How can he say that? When, when you see in the world what we so often see, how can you say something like that? How do we make sense of that? How do we get from verse 16 and the pain of living in a broken world to verse 22 and rejoicing in the work of our hands even though we're still living in a broken world? Some of us have stared into the fog so long that we're quite convinced that any attempt to move forward or beyond it is just foolish. This is just how life is. And so get used to it. Keep the status quo. Turn a blind eye to the wrongs because you can't do anything about them anyway. Find a way to cope and it'll all be over before we know it. Others look at that fog and they share that same hopelessness and instead of just resigning themselves, they, their hearts give way to despair and to frustration, to anger, especially as they are victims of the injustice committed by someone else. And then there are those who press forward into the fog, determined to dispel it. Uh, they're not content to watch the AIDS virus continue to cripple entire African countries. They're not content to stand back while immigrants are paid unfairly or to be silent in the face of the worst human trafficking epidemic that this that history has ever known, which is going on right now. They're going to do something about it. And according to one study, 90% of young people born between 1980 and 2000 in the U.S., 90% believe it's their responsibility to make a difference in the world. Now, that spirit is to be commended. That's really exciting when you think about what might happen with a generation of people who are not content to watch human suffering continue. In fact, the last 20 years, the church has seen a re-emphasis in 
Not just proclaiming the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but putting tangible action to it in encountering and dealing with human suffering. That's very exciting. That's biblical. You know, the Bible calls it loving our neighbors. We often refer to it as social justice. There's our word. And while it's exciting, and while Ecclesiastes by no means speaks against that spirit, it does offer a serious qualification. If this is all we have, if we're left merely to our own resolve, our own ingenuity, our own effort to fight injustice, then we will find ourselves frustrated and defeated at the end of the day. If all we have is what we've got under the sun, we will continue to watch injustice prevail and we will continue to be powerless to do anything about it. So what is it then that takes us from verse 16 and this observation to verse 22 and the joy that that we have in working uh, in serving the Lord? Solomon does not tell us to give up. Nor does he tell us to reach deep down inside of yourself in the face of injustice. Instead, he tells us to look up, to look down, and then to look ahead in order to press forward against injustice. So first, Solomon tells us to look up and see God, our judge, who will be faithful to establish justice and make all things right in the end. To look up and see God. That's his first reflection in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. We need to remember that injustice is not just a a horizontal phenomenon. It's not just humans hurting one another. This is God's creation. We are God's creatures. And so our actions toward one another affect our relationship with God. Any offense against finite humans is at the same time an offense against an infinite God. And therefore, it's an infinitely wicked offense. And God will not allow that to stand. He cannot because he is a just and righteous God. He's holy. He can't allow sin into his presence. He must deal with it. God must judge sin. And he will be faithful to do that. He will be faithful to deal with it by condemning the wicked and vindicating the righteous or the innocent. So Solomon looks up and that's what he sees. And notice how the last part of verse 17 echoes the first verse in this chapter and the poem about time. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. God will judge the wicked for there's a time for every matter under heaven. So if we were to add a line to that poem, it might read a time for injustice and a time for God to call the wicked to account. So rather than seeing, this is interesting, rather than seeing a disconnect between God's sovereign plan and and the rampant injustice we see in the world, the wickedness we see. Instead, it's God's sovereign plan to judge that that makes justice possible. It's only God's sovereign plan 
to deal with it that makes justice possible. And so that enables Solomon to enjoy the work of his hands because he knows that God will be faithful to make all things right in the end. So first we need to look up and we need to see God our judge who will make all things right. But that raises an obvious question. I hope you've been asking it to yourself. If God is going to be faithful to judge injustice and to vindicate or to acquit the innocent, who are the innocent? According to Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, no one. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's Solomon later in this book. And so after we look up to God, we have to also now look down into the grave and to see and realize our own mortality between a just and holy God, which is a result of human rebellion. Solomon's second reflection comes in verses 18 to 21. I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows the spirit of man which goes upward and the spirit of the beast which goes down into the earth? Now, there are several things we need to understand from those verses, which are really pretty discouraging when you just read them uh, at first glance. Uh, first, Solomon is offering at least one explanation for why God allows injustice to happen amid his sovereign plan. To remind us that we are not God. There's at least one reason why he allows. He's testing us to remind us that we are not God. We are not the creator. We are creatures right alongside the animals. And therefore, we need God. We need God. Uh, We are human. We are made in God's image. And so we're unlike the animals in a lot of ways. But when it comes to our ability to deal with injustice, to do what is right and make right what is wrong, we find ourselves insufficient because we're not God and because we bear the same limitation as the beasts, death. And that's the second point. Not merely that we're creatures, but that we are creatures living under a death sentence. And our looming death makes us uh, little different from mere animals. Note the comparison that he makes in verses 19 to 21. So our lives conclude the same way as the beasts in death. We have the same dependence upon breath, the same fleeting existence. We are vapor, vanity. So there's no advantage or gain for humans in that regard. We have the same physical destination. We are headed for the dust. And listen to the echo here of Genesis 3.19 which reminds us of the whole message of that chapter in Genesis 3 and the very reason that humans are headed for the dust because of our human sin and rebellion against God and his kingdom. So Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We're not just incapable of establishing justice. We are part of the problem. We are part of the problem. And finally, in verse 21, like the animals, our spirit or our life is ultimately mysterious to us. Now, several English translations make this verse uh, more confusing than it is. The Hebrew does not read, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward. The word weather is not there. Uh, the New King James, I think, captures this verse better. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So the question he's asking here is not about the direction or destination of human and animal spirits. Solomon says clearly of humans later in chapter 12, verse 7, that the dust, the body, returns to the earth as it, as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So that's not the question he's asking. Rather, the question is, who has intimate knowledge of those spirits? And the answer is not you, but God. God knows. And so, to press forward into the fog of injustice in a world that doesn't work the way it is, the way it, the way it should, we need to look up and see God our judge. We need to look down and see our own humanness and mortality before him. But where does that leave us? Uh, you know, that's not a very joyful prospect. And so we need also to look ahead to the cross. We need to look ahead to the cross of Jesus. God is a holy judge. Uh, and therefore, he must punish sin and rebellion or he's unjust. And as we've seen, if he doesn't do it, no one else can. No one else is capable of establishing justice. But God does this in one of two ways. Either in the end, pouring his anger on all who continue to rebel against his rightful rule and reject him as king, or in advance on the cross, pouring his holy anger against our sin on his son, Jesus, who willingly and graciously took it in the place of all who believe. So we need more than justice to put this earth back together. We need mercy. We need both. We need both justice and mercy. And the only way that sinful, rebellious, unjust humans like you and me and everyone else can experience both justice and mercy is in the cross of Jesus. That, again, is the centerpiece of God's whole orchestrating of history and time was moving to the cross. In the cross, God's justice was upheld. He was a just God and punished sin in his son. Not, not Jesus' sin, but ours. From the cross, mercy flows to sinners, to unrighteous, uh, unqualified humans because Jesus took our place if we put our faith in him. So through the cross and resurrection of Jesus and by God's spirit, as we trust in Christ, God forgives our sins. He adopts us into his family and he takes us as our own 
We belong to him and nothing is going to take that away. Nothing's going to take that away. True justice, lasting justice for a world that needs both justice and mercy is only available through the cross. As Tom Wright says, the Christian faith endorses the passion for justice that every human being knows, the longing to see things put to rights. And it claims that in Jesus, God himself has shared this passion and put it into effect so that in the end, all tears may be dried and the world may be filled with justice and joy. So the way forward is not to give up when we see a world uh, out of joint, nor is it to look deep down inside of ourselves. It's to look up to God, our judge. It's to look down at our sin and mortality, and it's to look ahead, or from our vantage now, backward to the cross. That's what frees us to press forward into the fog, in the fog of life in a fallen world, and to serve God joyfully with hope. And we do that by preaching the gospel of Jesus and by loving our neighbor. That's how we counter injustice in this world. All the while entrusting the results to God's sovereign plan. So part of our our limitation as humans is that we can't see what's going to come of our effort. At the end of the day, we don't know whether what we do is going to have a lasting effect. That's part of what Solomon means at the end of verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So apart from God and the gospel, the message of Jesus, our efforts to resist and address injustice are vapor. They're vanity. They are fleeting and fruitless. And sometimes, even when we do trust God and serve him and work hard, nothing seems to happen still. But, but recognizing that our work may not accomplish what we hope it will, and that justice is ultimately in God's hands, does not mean that we don't work hard to lay our lives down for others or take the opportunity to pursue justice, to do what is right and make right what is wrong in this earth. It just means that we can't depend on ourselves to do it, that we have to depend on God. And that means preaching the gospel of Jesus, loving our neighbors, and entrusting the results to God's sovereign plan. That's how we move forward into the fog. We must preach the gospel. We cannot just serve people without telling them about Christ. Apart from Christ, there's no lasting transformation. There's no eternal good. Dwayne Litfin writes, As water is relevant to thirst, as food is relevant to hunger, as medicine is relevant to sickness, So this verbal message, the truth that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, that truth is relevant to the deepest and most profound need of every human heart. 
May we never lose heart in giving word to it. We must always preach the gospel. Tell others who Jesus is, what he's done in the cross and the resurrection. And yet that same gospel reminds us that we are ambassadors of God's new creation. And so we must also live in the hope of that coming peace and justice and lovingly serve and lay our lives down following the pattern of Christ who loved his neighbors, who loved his enemies. So it means getting our hands dirty with things like fighting poverty. It means defending the defenseless, standing in the gap for, for widows, for orphans, for the unborn, working against the discrimination of ethnic minorities. Whatever the Lord puts in your path and gives you influence to do, to love your neighbor and serve them on behalf of Christ. Uh, Tom Wright gives a compelling illustration. When the slave trade was at its height, with many people justifying it on the grounds that slaves are mentioned in the Bible, it was a group of devout Christians led by the unforgettable William Wilberforce in Britain and John Woolman in America who got together and made it their life's business to stop it. When, with slavery long dead and buried, racial prejudice still haunted the United States, it was the Christian vision of Martin Luther King Jr. that drove him to peaceful but highly effective protest. Wilberforce was grasped by a passion for God's justice on behalf of the slaves, a passion which cost him what might have been an otherwise dazzling political career. Martin Luther King's passion for justice for African Americans cost him his life. Their tireless campaigning grew directly and explicitly out of their loyalty to Jesus. Their passion for Christ and his gospel and his vision of justice drove them to lay their lives down at great cost. To step into the fog. What might God do through us? What might God do through a generation of young people and their passion for justice if we take the gospel of Jesus seriously? Whatever he does now, in part, by his grace, he will be faithful to accomplish in whole in the end when he returns. When the fog lifts once and for all and morning dawns and we're surrounded by the dazzling light and glory of God's presence for all eternity. So though life is clouded by injustice and death, we can trust God our judge to make all things right in the end. And so in the meantime, we can serve God joyfully working to see some things made right here and now by preaching the gospel and loving our neighbors. The Lord's table is a celebration of the hope of the gospel. This table that we're going to celebrate this morning, it reminds us, it helps us look back to the cross and the resurrection where Christ dealt with our sins to deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners by taking it 
in our place. By giving his body, which is what the bread represents. By pouring out his blood, which is what the cup represents. And this table also helps us to to look forward to the great feast and celebration that we will enjoy at the end of time when Christ returns and when justice has been finally and fully accomplished for all eternity. When his peace will reign to the end of the earth, God's rule and glory will shine forever and every tear will be wiped from every eye and death will be no more. So this table points us back to the cross and resurrection. It points us forward to the joy of Christ's return. And it gives us hope. It gives us hope to know that God has done what he needs to do to buy our peace. And he will be faithful to do what he needs to do to bring it to completion. So if you are a Christian, if Jesus is your hope, then I invite you this morning to join with us in this celebration of this table to rejoice in the gospel of Christ that our sin has been dealt with. Uh, If you're not sure whether you're a Christian, if you're not sure what that means, uh, I encourage you just to let the elements pass this morning. And instead of taking the sign, take hold of Christ himself in faith. Surrender your hearts to the God who is able to control all of this earth and work it out according to his purposes, even dealing with the wrongs we see in this world. And so who can give us hope for lasting life and joy and peace? So as I pray, the ushers can come forward as we celebrate this meal. Lord, we thank you that you are a just and merciful God. Where would we be apart from both your justice and your mercy? But scratching our heads and staring into a fog that conceals our inevitable grave, that's where we'd be. But Lord, we thank you that in Christ the morning has already dawned, though the fog still remains, that he has done what it takes to rescue sinners, to deal with justly with sin and mercifully with us. We thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate that hope with this meal this morning. And so we pray your blessing on it. We pray, Lord, for every heart here that we would be uh, captured freshly with a vision of who you are and with what you've done through the cross and resurrection of Jesus and with a vision of what you've called us to do in response. So be honored this morning as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.